0: The Bain Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, Tarzan, Tars Tarkas, Tanar, Carson, and Dejah Thoris all walk into a bar. A Mars bar, that is. War poems and the future deobfuscated and burnished to a gleam, plus part 22 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have a wonderful roundtable discussion of Edgar Rice Burroughs. Celebrating the debut this month of The Worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs, a collection edited by Mike Resnick and Robert Garcia, and full of stories by a gaggle of great current science fiction writers, all set in one or more of The Worlds from ERB's books. We have with us the editors, Mike Resnick and Robert Garcia, plus two authors who have stories in the anthology, Sarah A. Hoyt and Joe Lansdale. This one is hosted by Bain Consulting Editor and Guru of Ancient Pulp Masterpieces, David F. Sherirad. We also have begun a project here at Bain to collect military-themed poetry into an audio book that we're putting together. Towards those ends, we have another poem read by Tom Kratman, retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel and creator of the Carrera series. This one is a historical battle poem, a G.K. Chesterton poem called Lepanto. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All that and more coming your way on the Bane Free Radio Hour. But first, Laura Haywood Corey and David Afsharirad join me for the news. I want to remind everyone that the new military adventure novel by Larry Correa and Mike Kapari is out this month. It is a mass market original. That is, it is coming out in paperback size. This is Swords of Exodus. I was in on the editing of this one, and I have to tell you, it's really cool. It's gritty with lots of action. Both guys know their weapons, and uh, it just feels realistic and right in that regard. And it's also got an amazingly fun premise. The good guys, who are not such paladins themselves, are working with a modern paramilitary version of the Knights of Templar. It's just amazing how believable Larry and Mike make this, and I I really like the book. Check it out, Swords of Exodus. So let's mention a couple of upcoming podcasts. David, today we're debuting your Edgar Rice Burroughs roundtable discussion. How'd you like doing this one? Uh, This was
2: great. This is for, um, as you'll hear, uh, an anthology Bain did called uh, The Worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs, which is all new stories set in Burroughs universes that he created. I had a lot of fun with it, Burroughs is a um a favorite of mine uh, ever since I read the John Carter books and Tarzan and all the uh, not all the others he wrote several hundred books I think but I've read a lot of them and it was great to get to talk to uh Mike Resnick and Bob Garcia who edited the thing and uh Sarah Hoyt who's got a story in there and also uh, another one of my favorite writers which is Joe Lansdale who's from my state of Texas uh, and he wrote a great story in the anthology as well. So uh, I had a lot of fun, and I think people enjoy listening to it.
1: Yeah, it turned out really good, and I think you're right about that. And next week, on Halloween, we'll post another discussion of Bane October spooky short story collection In Space No One Can Hear You Scream. That's the name of the collection. So that will be available for download on October 31st, the podcast, that is, which is on a Thursday this year. So a day earlier than we normally post, but check it out, our In Space No One Can Hear You Scream special.
3: Well, that should certainly get us into the spirit of the holiday.
1: Well, if it doesn't, we should just give up the ghost. And that's no joke, boils and ghouls. Mm. We're going to do the skeletal one.
2: Yeah, you know, these scripts are getting a little skeletal, these these new scripts you write, Tony. All right,
1: I've had it. Enough vamping. Let's move on.
3: I think moving on would be a grave mistake. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hey, look, it's the great punkin Charlie Brown. All right, coming up in November is an interview with Sharon Lee and Steve Miller on their new Leiden Universe novel, Trade Secret. That one will be conducted by our own talented, lovely, and often purple-wearing associate editor, Laura Haywood Corey. You looking forward to that, Laura?
3: I am very much. Trade Secret is a direct follow-on to the uh, Leiden Universe story, Balance of Trade. It follows... The Adventures of Young Jeffrey Goblin and his attempts to meld both his Terran heritage and his uh, Leaden-adopted culture and become his own man. It was a good read, and you don't have to have read Balance of Trade in order to start on Trade
1: Secret. Uh, that'll be fun, Then Sharon and, and Steve are always great uh, interview subjects. So okay. we'll have those and lots more in November. Tom Crapman on his new Carrera novel, Come and Take Them. Lots of good stuff, so check it out.
2: It's the Bane Free Radio Hour. I'm Bain Consulting Editor David F. Shiread. If you don't know Edgar Rice Burroughs, you almost certainly know his most famous creation. Tarzan of the Apes is the star of 24 novels, a long-running comic strip, and numerous film and television adaptations going all the way back to 1918 when he was played by Elmo Lincoln. But the vine-swinging Lord of the Jungle wasn't Edgar Rice Burroughs' only creation. Burroughs took readers to the Dead Sea Bottoms of Mars, or perhaps I should say Barsoom, with Civil War Captain John Carter into the land of Pellucidar at the Earth's core, not to mention Venus, and Casback, the line that time forgot. In honor of Burroughs' seemingly limitless imagination, Bain Books is proud to present Worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs, an anthology of all-new stories set in some of Burroughs' most beloved universes. Here to talk to me today about Edgar Rice Burroughs and the worlds he created is the co-editor of the anthology, Mike Resnick, Mike has won five Hugo Awards from a record 36 nominations. According to Locus, he is the all-time leading award winner, living or dead, for short fiction. In addition to all those award-winning short stories, he's written 71 novels and three screenplays and has edited 40 anthologies. His work has been translated into more language than I knew existed. Hello, Mike, or I guess I should say K.O.R., Mike. Thanks for being with us.
4: Oh, thanks for inviting me, and uh, while I'm at it, thanks for uh, okaying the anthology.
2: Mike didn't do all the editorial heavy lifting alone, however, and his co-editor, Robert T. Garcia, is also with us. Bob is the founder, along with his wife Nancy, of Garcia Publishing Services. He and Nancy share a World Fantasy Award, which they won in 1983 for American Fantasy Magazine, a publication that later spun off into American Fantasy Press. He's the editor of several anthologies, including Chill to the Bone, Unrepentant, A Celebration of Harlan Ellison, and Temporary Walls. That last one was with Greg Ketter. He also edited and packaged the first U.S. edition of Vargo Staten's much-sought-after novelization of Creature from the Black Lagoon. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, David. Sarah A. Hoyt is on the line with us as well. Sarah is the author of numerous novels and short stories. Her novel Dark Ship Thieves won the Prometheus Award, and I've just received word that the third novel set in that universe, A Few Good Men, has been nominated for that same award. Sarah maintains an active online presence on her blog, according to Hoyt. For this anthology, she teamed up with best-selling writer Kevin J. Anderson to produce a different kind of Burroughs-inspired Martian story. Sarah, congrats on the nomination. Thanks for talking with us. And finally, we've got Joe R. Lansdale with us. Joe's story, Tarzan and the Land that Time Forgot, closes out the anthology, but this isn't the first time he's played in the Burroughs Sandbox. He finished an incomplete novel by ERB himself, which was released as Tarzan, The Lost Adventure. He's written in just about every genre I can think of, from horror, mystery, to westerns, to science fiction. I guess he hasn't done a straight-up bodice ripper romance, but maybe I just missed it. He's won the Bram Stoker Award a whopping nine times and has two New York Times notable books. His Depression-era thriller The Bottoms won the Edgar Award for Best Novel in 2001. His novella Bubba Hotep was adapted by horror legend Don Coscarelli into a cult film, and Cold in July, a new film based on one of his early novels, is in production right now. That film stars Dexter himself, Michael C. Hall, and none other than the great Don Johnson. Joe's newest book, The Thicket, is available now in bookstores everywhere and online. Joe, thanks for being with us.
5: I'm glad to be here.
2: Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Burroughs first, and then I want to get to the anthology. Under the Moons of Mars, ERB's first novel, which was later published as A Princess of Mars, was serialized in The All-Story in 1911. For those listeners like me who are maybe not so good at math, that's over 100 years ago, and next year we'll celebrate Tarzan's centennial. Uh, these books are old, is what I'm getting at, and yet they're still selling. We're still talking about them. New readers discover Burroughs all the time. Uh, what is it, do you think, that makes these sto- the stories that Burroughs wrote, the worlds he created, if you will, so timeless? Why are we still reading him when so many of his contemporaries are no longer read?
5: Yeah, I was just going to say the thing is, is that certain aspects of the novel's date but his imagination doesn't and he had a way of tapping into some of those primal thoughts that I think people have and I think especially boys that uh, and he he did he, he he imagined things on page that we dreamed in our head and there was just nothing like him and uh, I when I read him up till that time I was primarily a comic book reader and I did read short stories and novels, and I wanted to write. That was my big dream. But after I read him, I knew I had to write. And so to me, it was that incredible dream-like imagination that he had that hooked me and has kept me interested in Burroughs, even to this day.
3: I read him in, in Portuguese translation at about the age of six or seven. And uh worked fine. I mean, it, now as an adult, I can look back and say, how did I get into this? But at the time, it was the adventure and the heroism that hooked me and kept me going.
6: I, there's a couple of different reasons this, uh, I think it, he has succeeded and, and lasted for so long. One is his, his uh, just heads-on sense of adventure. Just wanted to take you on that first Couple of pages and bring you in, and he just threw everything at you and kept the adventure moving and moving and moving. But also, as a as a writer, he 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 learned a lot of, a lot of lessons hard and quick early on. He did his uh, books. He, he it was there's it an act of desperation when he was had failed at everything else. He went off and started to write, and it started to sell, and he started to succeed, and he leverage that he—he he didn't just write. He went off and he—he he, he optioned Tarzan to movies. He—he he went every chance, every opportunity he got to put out Tarzan somewhere in the world as a, as a comic strip, as as a movie, as books, ties, and whatever he did. He worked at his, his at the at the business of Tarzan, and because of that, he. Fifty years, all the way up. I mean, all the way up until the time he died. There was work, someone actively working to sell the ideas, besides writing all these terrific books that he did.
4: One, one of the things I noticed uh, early on is uh, this guy really understood pacing, and he he was uh, he also learned uh, how to structure a book. He would follow. Tarzan until Numa the lion was, was about two seconds from biting off his head. Then the next chapter would follow Jane until she was one grope away from a fate worse than death, and then back to Tarzan, and then back to Jane. He did an awful lot of that. And I did an article a while back uh, about something else that I think really appealed to kids. You know, we love to imagine ourselves as the greatest swordsman on Barsoom or swinging through the trees, but we were 8, 10, 12 years old, and we're Deep down, we knew better. But Burroughs wrote himself into every one of these stories. Uh, he was John Carter's nephew. He was Jason Gridley's next-door neighbor, and Gridley put him in touch with Carson of Venus, and Gridley went to to Pellucidar. He heard the story about Tarzan from someone who had, who had no right to tell it to him. He was the guy who held the hero's horse, and if we couldn't be the hero, at least we could be Burroughs.
5: I I think there's a whole lot to that. I also think that his first-person narratives, and of course not all of his work work was first-person, but his first-person narratives are what struck me the hardest. Because on some level, when I read A Princess of Mars and and a large number of the first-person narratives, I felt I was reading a true account. And that part of that connection is what you were just saying. I mean, I'm I'm getting this from somebody close to the source. It's not the source itself always. The source itself may be telling the story, but they're telling it to this person who is recording it or who is relating it back. And for me, that first-person narration affected the way I write ever since. I think it taught me pace. It taught me, even though I, I think the work that I'm doing now is far more mature than maybe that kind of story, that the core of that story is still my sentimental favorite. And he had this tremendous pacing. He had this ability to, to make you believe that you were hearing something special that not everybody else was hearing, and that it was unique, and it was right if not from the horse's mouth, as was just said, from the person who's holding the horse, and I think that on some level, I have a lot of boys, and I say this not not to eliminate girls, but a lot of the boys I knew would go out, and hold our arms out to Mars, and hope we would be sucked across oh, every space. Every night. Yeah. And the only problem was, as you think about it and you realize that after you got there, you'd be dead in about 15 minutes because <laughs> <laughs> you were not John Carter.
2: Well, so we've kind of talked of great how he's had a great deal of influence, um, not just on the science fiction and fantasy z- genres, but in what we think of as literature as well. You know, with a capital L, uh, Gore Vidal wrote a famous essay called "Tarzan Revisited." Michael Chabon, uh, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Wonder Boys, uh, speaks very fondly of Burroughs, um, and of course, Star Wars and Ray Bradbury. Uh, you know, I could go on and on. Check for a moment back around 1970.
4: Uh, Bill Bowers and Bill Millardi, who together did a Hugo-nominated fanzine called Double Bill, did a symposium in which they invited 75 writers to answer 10 or 11 questions, one of which was, who is your greatest influence? And at that time, which of course was 40-odd years ago, more than half of them named Edgar Rice Burroughs. There you go. Yeah, and I think that people
5: that my age—I was born in 1951—and people younger than that, I mean, born earlier than that, excuse me, and even up and through about the 70s, it burrows. Even though there were more, there was more mature fiction out there, and I begin to, you know, certainly find that and and uh, to graduate in a sense. But there is a core sort of power that Burroughs had that influenced a lot of people, and I know that you know Ray Bradbury, for example, was one of them, and I, and I know in my own way, even though I did exactly become a science fiction writer and only kind of visit it now and then, it impacted me deeply as far as a storyteller and, and more than just a plotter, somebody who engages the reader and gets them interested in what's going on and on some level makes them believe that this is really happening, at least in some compartmentalized alternate universe of the mind. And he had that great ability to do that.
4: He had one other ability, I, I would call it accessibility. Uh, yep. you never had to to be a genius to work your way through this prose. I mean ten year old kids could read it and understand it just as as easily as adults. And what, two thirds of the Pulitzer winners are out of print, but he's always been in print.
2: Okay, so let's talk about the book a little bit, the anthology. Um one thing I really liked about it is that it addressed the wider world of Burroughs. Um you know, I love Tarzan and I love John Carter. Um, but I'm also fond of his other work, the Venus books, um, what else, Land That Time Forgot, Beyond 30, The Monster Man, all that good stuff, The Mucker. Um, and it was great to see um, some of these worlds that kind of don't normally have the spotlight shined on them. They, get, they got highlighted as well as Tarzan and Carter. Um, you know, Mike and Bob, I'd just ask you, how is it that the idea came about to focus not only on the two big Burroughs creations of Tarzan and uh, John Carter, but also... Um, on some of these maybe lesser-known worlds?
6: Uh, the idea for the, the anthology came up when I was um, at a uh, local dum-dum, which is uh, the annual meeting of the Burroughs Bibliophiles, uh, one of the largest uh, fan organizations, or the largest fan organization of Burroughs uh, fans in the in the world. And uh, they were having a meeting here in uh, Chicago. And a friend of mine is Burroughs fan, and I went and I usually go to these things because they're awful lot of fun. And uh, uh, Jim Soulos, the uh, president of uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Inc., came up and was talking about their plans for uh, the centennial of of Burroughs, because it was probably 2010, 2011, and uh, the centennial was 2012. And um, he was listing off all the projects and the things, the the, uh, slot machine at Vegas and all the uh, nice little Tarzan tie-ins, and But he didn't mention anything like uh, uh, um, an anthology, a celebration, a, a, a tribute anthology to, to Burroughs, which I thought was definitely needed if we're going to have a, a centennial celebration for it. And uh, so I, I went away. I, I introduced myself to Jim, and I went away, and I figured talked thought about it for a bit. And then I asked Mike if... Because I knew he was an old Burroughs fan from way back when, uh, if he would be interested in editing the book with with me, along with a couple other things, and uh, uh, then we went to uh, to the book and the idea of it, and I think that it was to, to to the reason we picked the worlds of was kind of an introduction to a lot of people who don't know. Uh, uh, Erb, who who he's kind of fallen out of the favor in some circles, and and I thought a celebration, just going, just doing another Tarzan anthology, is it, you know was something I thought of, but we eventually decided the the. Uh, uh, A thing with every story, every every kind of aspect of that uh, Burroughs wrote in, because he wrote in every every type of genre that you can think of, Uh, would be more fun and more interesting. We could get a a different variety of authors because he influenced somebody so far outside the science fiction field. We 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 could go and talk to uh, someone like Max Collins, uh, who does you know crime mystery. And bring him into it because because he was uh, a Burroughs fan. I know I talked to him at the Dum Dum, uh, and a number of different people, and, and Burroughs influenced so many different types of, of fiction, writers and, and people who got hooked on his adventure stories that we thought this book would be uh, a lot uh, very interesting if we could play off all the worlds that Edgar Rice Burroughs played in. And once we started talking to people, they just jumped on board.
4: Yeah, I, I was going to say that when Bob proposed it to me, I said, yeah, that's crazy. You know, people have been trying to get permission from Burroughs Incorporated to do Burroughs uh, continuations, you know, for the last 50 years, and they never said yes. And uh, Bob said, well, I've talked to them, and they've okayed it, so, you know, of course I was in. And uh, there's some interesting uh, takes on this. Uh The fellow who, uh, for example, did our Apache Devil story, Burroughs did a a couple of Indian books, uh, served in the same cavalry uh, outfit as Burroughs a century later. And uh, there's some interesting connections there. Of course, the very first guy we insisted we had to have was Joe Lansdale, because he completed the unfinished Burroughs uh, Tarzan manuscript. Hello yeah too. and it was a great it was a great treat to do it
5: too I, you know it was uh there was about eighty or ninety pages or uh, what that they gave me I, honestly i don't remember the exact number and um uh, It was really strange, even though it was a photocopy, to hold this thing in my hand. And uh, so it was a great honor to do it, and I I, I enjoyed it. And to this day, it's one of my greatest uh, moments. Is it one of my greatest books? No, probably not. Was it one of Burroughs' greatest books? No, probably not. Is it entertaining? Yeah. But it was this whole childhood dream of working with this guy that had invented all of these Characters in all of these worlds that influenced me to be a writer, and and, and so to me this this was uh, such an exciting moment. And then to get to work in it, I worked in it also. I wrote a John Carter story for a Under the Moons of Mars, and then to write this, these were like dreams come true. They're sort of like full circle. I feel like I can die now. I've done all the, you know, the I've done the big novels, the big literary awards, and all that. But this one was very important to me because it was in in a way. The novel and these two short stories were my love letters to this guy, and saying, you know, thanks for making my childhood a lot more interesting than it might have been without you, and thanks for giving me a career that I've now been doing for forty years. Thank you so much.
2: You've also got a kind of humorous take on Tarzan that's out in ebook now, the Ape Man's Brother, that I would encourage people yeah. to to look look up. So,
5: yeah, you know the the the, the writer who in many ways, uh, as I got older and I, I somewhat felt that certain aspects of Tarzan were dated. You know, Philip Jose Farmer, I began to read, and he was like me. He loved Burroughs, but he was trying to find this way to look at it in a more modern way. And he was just re- reviled at first. Now, you know, he's kind of respected and loved for doing this, but when he did that great uh, biography of Tarzan, and of course he did Doc Savage and some um, and many other novels, and novels related to Burroughs, even Lord Tiger, one of his best novels, and, and uh, A Feast Unknown, where he took it off in a, in a pornographic vein. But he was always exploring the idea of why, at the core, Burroughs' characters were so Freudian or Jungian, and whatever, what was it that appealed so? deeply. And whether he was right or wrong in what those explorations were, he was constantly trying to do that. And so when I wrote The Eight Man's Brother, that was kind of my tribute to Burroughs and to him. And uh, so it was great fun, and I'm really proud of it. It's, it's an ebook now, but it's coming out actually in hardback next year.
4: Yeah, very briefly, in terms of farmer, about 15 years ago, maybe 20, uh, the University of Nebraska reprinted Tarzan Alive and asked me to do an introduction. And it just shocked the hell out of them, and and they had to triple-check all my facts, because I pointed out that uh, he did a book called The Feast Unknown that Joe just referred mm-hmm. to, which was pornographic about Tarzan and Doc Savage, and it's probably the only pornographic novel to spin off four straight books. From that came Tarzan Alive, Doc Savage's Apocalyptic Life, and a couple of fiction books, Lord of the Trees and The Mad Goblin. And yeah, which are... Which the are Nebraska didn't want to believe that. They held yeah, up production yeah. for months while they were checking it out. Well, what's what's funny is that Lord
5: of the Trees was like a, a an ace uh, novel, one of these simple yeah. sort of throwaway in their mind, and then, then, then there's a pornographic version, and they're connected. It's just beautiful. Yeah.
2: <laughs> All right, well, uh, Sarah, I wanted to talk to you about the story you co-wrote with Kevin Anderson, who sadly couldn't be here um, with us today on the phone. Um, I think all of Burroughs fans sort of wish that he had sent Tarzan to Mars at one point. Uh, to me, it's like the great unwritten Burroughs novel, the way like Smile is the great unproduced Beach Boys album, or Orson Welles' Don Quixote is the great unproduced Wells movie. Um, you gave us a Tarzan-Mars mashup, but not in the way that you know any of us would have expected, um, how did the idea to pair Tarzan with a Mars of your own making come about?
3: We Well, uh, Kevin asked me to if I wanted to play, actually, that's, that was his question. Do you want to play <laughs> in this? And I said, sure. And we were throwing ideas at each other for a long time. And my reaction was, I have to write Tarzan, because not only did I read Tarzan, but there was this, Entire, and I have no idea which one it was, but it was this black and white epi- series in episodes that played in Portugal when I was little and I used to watch it. So I wanted Tarzan. And what are we going to pit Tarzan against? And then we kind of pitfalled ideas until we came up with The Martians. We wanted to come up with something to pit him against. We didn't. It's going to sound terrible, but we didn't want to take him to Mars in a short story. There wouldn't be enough space to do it justice. So we ended up inventing our own Martians because that could fit in a short story. So that's
4: why we did it.
2: All right. Well, it certainly works well. All right, Mike, uh, you wrote uh, the only Barsoom tale in the book. The Mars being uh, Barsoom being the Martian word for Mars in Burroughs' books. um, For those who don't know, it's called the Forgotten Sea of Mars. And in the introduction that you write to the story, you say that your hope in writing it was that were someone to read it, they might mistake it for a lost Burroughs tale. Um, And I wonder if Sarah and Joe, when it came time to write your stories, did you feel an obligation? To hue closely to what Burroughs had done, either stylistically or in terms of world building? Um, or, Sarah, I, like you and Kevin Anderson did, you, know, you brought in a different Mars. Um, or did you feel free to do your own thing? And, uh, Mike and Bob, when you were selecting stories, was, were you looking for an adherence to Burroughs' kind of ground rules, or were you, you know, willing to let people kind of go off in, uh, in whatever crazy direction they took it?
5: Well, you know, I'm just I'm Joe. I, I'm, I'm going to say that I tried to. Uh capture Burroughs' pacing and feel, but I think I've been doing my writing for so long that I can't help but be me when I write, so uh, I, I don't worry about that so much. If I'm capturing the flavor and the energy of it, and, you know, I'm pretty well read in the Burroughs' material, but I try not to adhere to it. You know, uh, slavishly, because you can't imitate Edgar Rice Burroughs. I mean, he was the man. And uh, if you're going to do it, I I think it's almost uh, maybe a little bit from my from my point of view, too much of a little bit of an insult to say I'm going to write just like you. But I certainly wanted to ring those same bells, but I also wanted to put them in a slightly different cathedral.
3: We tried to keep the pace and the sense of adventure, but you know, again, it's not exactly something we could imitate.
6: Yeah, um, uh, this is Bob. Um, when we were soliciting the stories, I don't think that that uh, I, I know I was watching to make sure that we we didn't go into pastiche where there was slavish invita- imitations of of uh, Burroughs, and it never even became a a question in the book. But what. Uh, uh, and, and and but there were some people who wrote in the style and tried to capture that 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 same you know type of format and that, that was kind of fun to to, to, to read, but I think uh, the the one thing we wanted to do. Was or one thing I wanted to do was to bring authors in that had their own voices, that had, had, had established their own voices, their own their own uh, uh, way of looking at things, and, and uh, uh, bring you know have them look at at, at the Edgar Rice Burroughs world that they, you know that we we talked about and, and assigned to them or whatever, and that they got to play in. So it was it was uh, what I, I thought some the most fun of it was seeing different writers. Playing with the tropes and the, the 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 ideas, some some even trying to capture the voice. It's I, I remember talking to Paul Wilson, who's who's the Dead World, the Pellicidar historian, and he was he was saying that it was it was it was a, a challenge for him to to try to capture the voice of of uh, David Innes, who's it's a first person narrative again, and still do. The still write as himself and still write and bring in his voice into the story, and uh, I think that people, a lot of people had fun doing it. So uh, I, I think it uh, it worked. I, I'm very happy with the, what we got in.
4: Well, I should explain the, the history of the one fist season there. Uh, I would never write that story today. Move uh, the clock back oh, well over half a century, I think, to about 1951 or two. I was maybe nine, ten years old and a Burroughs fan, and Ray Palmer, of other worlds, uh, had a friend called uh, Stu Byrne, who had written a book called Tarzan on Mars under under the pseudonym of John Bloodstone, and Palmer wanted to publish it, and he tried to get all of his fans to write into Edgar Rice Burroughs to make, quote, John Bloodstone, the legal successor. Well, of course it didn't work. And when I saw after a year or two it wasn't going to work, at 14 or so, I sat down to write my version of Tarzan on Mars, just in case Burroughs changed their mind someday. And when I was 21, 22, something like that, uh, Camille Casdesu, who, who edited Herbdom, which I was writing for at the time, got permission from Burroughs Incorporated to run a novella as long as uh, they owned the copyright. So uh, the reason I had Tarzan on Mars, there, were, there was some problem with with an underground ocean and nobody on Mars can swim because there's no water on the surface. So they, need, John Carter needed help from Tarzan. Well, they put Tarzan back in the jungle where he belongs. I made it a novella. They published it. And the only reason it's in our book, although you know it's fine for what it was, is I think at this point Disney and and Burroughs have an agreement that Disney owns Mars, so we couldn't do a new Mars story, although we could do new everything else, and that was the only Mars story we could get our hands on.
2: Well, we've kind of talked a little bit about how Burroughs was formative for some of you. Um, I came to Burroughs kind of late. I was in my early 20s, and I was scouring the public library for something interesting, and I was probably looking for Ray Bradbury books I hadn't read, if I had to guess, and I looked down, and alphabetically you'll know they come close together, which is good for fans of both of those gentlemen. And I saw this row of battered hardback books by this guy named Edgar Rice Burroughs. And uh, the Mars books they had were the 70s book club edition that Frazetta did the covers for. And if you've seen the way Frazetta draws uh, Dejah Thoris, you'll know why this caught my attention. And uh, I picked them up, and I and I read them in just read through all of them. I made my wife, who has no interest in this kind of thing, I made her read them all. But I think that I'm kind of an anomaly in that. I think most people come to him earlier when they're, you know, maybe middle school, 13, 14, something like that. We've talked about it a little bit, but I just wonder if any of you have um, kind of a first Burroughs experience or an early Burroughs experience you wanted to share.
5: I would just say that when I Picked up a Princess Samar. Actually, a librarian gave it to me because I was reading just about everything there was in the library and I couldn't find anything. And it was kept in the adult section. Here's a weird thing it was kept as a Western. All of the Burroughs books were put under Western because they didn't know what science fiction was in some ways, which is weird because they had a children's section that had science fiction, you know. But they had this these things, they, and I think it's because they had nudity in them and that they were thought they were a little bit old for uh, younger readers. And, uh, of course, on Mars nobody wears any clothes, and there's very little clothes in a lot of the others. And I think they worried them. But this librarian says, look, let me, let me give you something that I think that you'll like. And she gave me a Princess of Mars and uh, that transformed my summer. I mean, all that summer I lived on Barsoom, and I, from that point on, I, like I said, I was already wanting to write. I wanted to write comic books, and and I, of course I'd love Jack London and all these different writers and Kipling I'd been reading. Because the Jungle Books also helped me lead right into the Tarzan books. Uh, but when I read this, I said, you know, it's no longer do I I, I want to be a writer. I have to be a writer because it transformed my life and it made everything. Even on this morning uh, when I I got up and I went outside, and it was a real crisp, clean morning. There was a certain smell in the air that draws me back to the nostalgic moment when I used to sit outside and read those books. Those Burroughs books. And so for me, there are certain times of the year, certain smells, that just send me like a time machine back. And more than that, it's like a time machine back to an alternate universe where these things are real. But that one moment when that librarian gave me that book, I must have been about 11. Uh, from then on, I was, I was hooked.
3: I was six or seven when I found Tarzan. I was reading through my dad's library and a lot of it was uh, biographies and, and memoirs. and The thing is, I read all of Tarzan without ever realizing it wasn't a memoir, and it wasn't real. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yes, it, it, it took me on an adventure. I just thought I was reading something real. I think I was 10 or 11 when I found out it
4: wasn't. So, oh, uh, I grew up reading comic strips and, you know, comic books of her Tarzan, and the thing is, uh, that didn't interest me at all, you know, he's an overgoid ex-swimmer who spoke pigeon English, Uh, I, I read Burroughs first in Mars, and then I read the Tarzan books and thought, hey, this guy sits in the House of Lords, he speaks 22 languages, he's no dummy, I'll read the rest of them.
6: Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid growing up, Tarzan was everywhere. It was in the comic strips and newspapers. It was in television. There were toys everywhere you named it but it was the Johnny Weissmuller you know meet Tarzan Eugene and I was like oh that that's kind of interesting I read it when I was at the doctor's office in the comic book pile that they had sitting there you know um, but then you know I, I became I was, a, I was an avid comic book reader and I, and I I i was reading Marvel comics and that led me to Robert E. Howard and then I started to read uh uh, uh DC D. comics for a while Neil Adams brought me over to DC and uh I'm reading along, and and they're they're announcing a new title. You know, Tarzan's coming out. I'm like, okay, who cares? And they put Joe Kubert on it, which was a a great comic book artist. And I sat down and I read the first... uh, adaptation that he had done of of Tarzan, and and it was it, it was so it was very faithful to the books, and it was a revelation to me. And I said, Well, what the heck's this? This isn't the Tarzan that Weiss... I mean, I've been looking at all my life. Where are the Ant Men? So I went off and I and and they started to pick up uh, uh, the books, and uh, and the first three books of Tarzan are just that's astonishing. They're great. It's a revelation. As as Mike says, he speaks 22 languages. uh, These are great, solid adventures. It's an Africa that didn't exist, but it was really cool. And uh, uh, I got into that, and and the Frazetta covers, again, the Frazetta covers got me interested in Pellicidar, and from then I was hooked as a a Burroughs fan.
4: Well, I I predate that. One of the problems I had was uh, by about 1951 or so, Almost all the Burroughs Incorporated books were out of print, and it was 10 years before Ace started, I'm not allowed to say pirating, buccaneering all the Burroughs books. <laughs> there was a 10-year period there when there were eight Tarzan books, not, and Tarzan of the Apes wasn't one of them, published by Grosset and Dunlap and aimed at, at kids, and that was the only Burroughs I could find. So uh, I, I had to go to secondhand stores and, and whatever. Uh, there's they never thought he was going to come back until ace you know proved there were a couple of million people out there who who would like to read him
5: yeah, I, you know, the <laughs> funny, funny thing had not been for the library, I probably wouldn't have come across it either, and then there was that, that, that big resurgence in paperback, but I just wanted to nod back just one thing and give I have to give the movies some credit, because when I was a kid, one of they had Saturday morning movies, and one, and some of the stuff they were showing, because television was relatively new at that time, in that they were still looking for material, they had casting and things like that, but one of the things they showed with these old, with uh, Johnny Weismuller movies, and I adored them, I still do, but they made me aware of Tarzan, and then I read Princess of Mars, and I thought, oh my God, this is the same guy that wrote these uh, TV, I mean, that these movies are based on, and I'm going to read those, and then, of course, that Tarzan was far more magnificent and, and amazing, but to this day, I still do have a love for those those movies, in spite of the me, Tarzan, you, U J and still think that nobody's quite topped Weissmuller, so that's my take. <laughs> you
4: know, the, the interesting thing about that resurgence from Ace was the way it happened. Uh, Burroughs, was pretty heavily edited when he would hand stories into the magazines. And then when he would publish them himself, he would revert to the original text. And what happened was most of the magazines didn't renew their copyrights. They were all out of business. And Don Wolheim over at Ace realized that there was enough of a difference between the magazine and book versions that he published the magazine versions with the same titles as public domain books. And he got away with it for the first 17 or 18 books. They were selling like crazy. And Burroughs tried to sue once or twice, didn't do any good. And then he made a mistake. He published the Tarzan book. Well, Tarzan is trademarked, and trademarks are eternal. And Burroughs got him in court again. They got back royalties on everything. They sold the Mars and Tarzan books uh, to Ballantyne, and they left Ace with what they thought of as the dregs, although Ace still managed to sell a bunch of them. But that that was how the, the resurgence began.
2: All right, well, I guess I just want to wind up here with a question for everyone, a quick one, which is, if we threaten to throw you to the great white apes of Mars, uh, unless you answered, what would you say your favorite Burroughs novel or who your favorite Burroughs character is? Uh, I,
5: this is Joe. For me, it's a uh, favorite novel, the Princess of Mars, and it's John Carter.
4: This is Mike. For me, it's John Carter, but my favorite novel, oddly enough, is The War Chief*.
3: I like the Tarzan uh... All of them. Uh, Part of it I should enlighten is that I didn't know he had written anything else until I came to the States. I don't know if the other stuff was never translated into Portuguese or if it was long out of print by the time I came of Reading Age and I never found it. Since I read it much older, it didn't have the same impact.
6: Uh, This is Baba. Uh Well, I have to say, I think Tarzan of the Apes was probably the the best of the Burroughs books, but for me, my personal favorite will always be at the Earth's core, because Pellicidar just captured my imagination like no other.
5: That's also so good.
6: (laughs) Yeah, it is.
2: (laughs) All right, well, the book is Worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs, and it's available now from Bain Books. I want to thank everyone for being with us today. Joe, Mike, Bob, Sarah, thanks so much.
6: Thank you. thank you. You're welcome. thank
4: Bye.
1: you. We are putting together an audio and book project with our Bain authors in which we have each author pick out his or her favorite military poem or group of poems from the past, and ask them to read it for us. This time we have another great rendition of a poem by Tom Kratman, creator of the Carrera and Countdown series, and author of many other novels. Here's Tom Cratman reading G.K. Chesterton's Lepanto.
7: Lepanto, Gilbert Keith Chesterton. White founts falling in the courts of the sun, and the soldan of Byzantium is smiling as they run. There is laughter like the fountains in that face of all men feared. It stirs the forest darkness, the darkness of his beard. It curls the blood-red crescent, the crescent of his lips, for the inmost sea of all the earth is shaken with his ships. They have dared the white republics up the capes of Italy. They have dashed the Adriatic round the lion of the sea. And the Pope has cast his arms abroad for agony and loss and called the kings of Christendom for swords about the cross. The cold Queen of England is looking in the glass. The shadow of the Valois is yawning at the mass. From evening isles fantastical rings faint the Spanish gun and the lord upon the golden horn is laughing in the sun. Dim drums throbbing in the hills half-heard, where only on a nameless throne a crownless prince is stirred. Where risen from a doubtful seat and half a tainted stall, the last knight of Europe takes weapons from the wall, the last and lingering troubadour to whom the bird is sung, that once went singing southward when all the world was young. In that enormous silence, tiny and unafraid, comes up along a winding road the noise of the crusade. Strong gongs groaning as the guns boom far. Don John of Austria is going to the war. Stiff flag straining in the night blasts cold, in the gloom black purple, in the glint old gold. Torchlight crimson on the copper kettle drums, then the tuckets, then the trumpets, then the cannon, and he comes. Don John laughing in the brave beard curled, spurning of his stirrups like the thrones of all the world. Holding his head up as a flag of all the free, love light of Spain, hurrah, death light of Africa. Don John of Austria is riding to the sea. Mahound is in his paradise above the evening star. Don John of Austria is going to the war. He moves a mighty turban on the timeless hori's knees, his turban that is woven of the sunsets and the seas. He shakes the peacock gardens as he rises from his ease and he strides among the treetops and is taller than the trees. And his voice through all the garden is a thunder sent to bring, Black like Azrael and Ariel and Ammon on the wing, Giants in the genii, multiplex of wing and eye, Whose strong obedience broke the sky when Solomon was king. They rush in red and purple from the red clouds of the morn, From the temples where the yellow gods shut up their eyes in scorn. They rise in green robes roaring from the green hells of the sea, Where fallen skies and evil hues and eyeless creatures be. On them the sea-valves cluster and the grey sea-forests curl, Splashed with a splendid sickness, the sickness of the pearl. They swell in sapphire smoke out of the blue cracks of the ground, They gather and they wander, and give worship to Mahound. And he saith, break up the mountains where the hermit-folk can hide, And sift the red and silver sands lest bone of saint abide, And chase the jurors flying night and day not giving rest, For that which was our trouble comes again out of the west. We have set the seal of Solomon on all things under sun, of knowledge and of sorrow and endurance of things done. But a noise is in the mountains, in the mountains, and I know the voice that shook our palaces four hundred years ago. It is he that saith not kismet, it is he that knows not fate, it is Richard, it is Raymond, it is Godfrey at the gate. It is he whose loss is laughter when he counts the wager worth. Put down your feet upon him, that our peace be on the earth." He heard drums groaning and he heard guns jar Don John of Austria is going to the war Sudden and still, hurrah, bolt from Iberia Don John of Austria is gone by Alcalar St. Michael's on his mountain in the sea roads of the north Don John of Austria is girt and going forth Where the gray seas glitter and the sharp tides shift And the sea folk labor and the red sails lift He shakes his lance of iron and he claps his wings of stone the noise has gone through Normandy, the noise has gone alone. The north is full of tangled things and texts and aching eyes, and dead is all the innocence of anger and surprise. And Christian killeth Christian in a narrow dusty room, and Christian dreadeth Christ that hath a newer face of doom, and Christian hateth Mary that God kissed in Galilee. But Don John of Austria is riding to the sea. Don John calling the blast and the eclipse, crying with the trumpet, with the trumpet of his lips, trumpet that saith ha, domino gloria, Don John of Austria is shouting to the ships. King Philip's in his closet with the fleece about his neck. Don John of Austria is armed upon the deck. The walls are hung with velvet that is black and soft as sin, and little dwarfs creep out of it, and little dwarfs creep in. He holds a crystal vial that has colors like the moon. He touches, and it tingles, and he trembles very soon. And his face is as a fungus of a leprous white and gray, like plants in the high houses that are shuttered from the day. And death is in the file and the end of noble work. But Don John of Austria has fired upon the Turk. Don John's hunting and his hounds have bayed. Booms away past Italy the rumor of his raid. Gun upon gun, ha <laughs> ha, gun upon gun, Don John of Austria has loosed the cannonade. The Pope was in his chapel before day or battle broke. Don John of Austria is hidden in the smoke. The hidden room in man's house where God sits all the year, the secret window whence the world looks small and very dear. He sees us in a mirror on the monstrous twilight sea, the shadow, crescent of his cruel ships whose name is Mystery. They fling great shadows forwards, making cross and castle dark. They veil the plumed lions on the galleys of St. Mark. And above the ships are palaces of brown, black-bearded chiefs. And below the ships are prisons, where with multitudinous griefs, Christian captives, sick and sunless, all a laboring race repines like a race in sunken cities, like a nation in the mines. They are lost like slaves that sweat and in the skies of morning hung, the stairways of the tallest gods when tyranny was young. They are countless, voiceless, hopeless, as those fallen are fleeing on. Before the king's high horses in the granite of Babylon. And many a one grows witless in his quiet room in hell, where a yellow face looks inward through the lattice of his cell. And he finds his god forgotten, and he seeks no more a sign. But Don John of Austria has burst the battle line. Don John pounding from the slaughter painted poop, purpling all the ocean like a bloody pirate's sloop, scarlet running over on the silvers and the golds, breaking of the hatches up, and bursting of the holds. Thronging of the thousands up that labor under sea, white for bliss and blind for sun and stunned for liberty. Vivat Hispania, Domino Gloria, Don John of Austria has set his people free. Cervantes on his galley sets the sword back in its sheath. Don John of Austria rides homeward with a wreath. And he sees across a weary land a straggling road in Spain, up which a lean and foolish knight forever rides in vain. And he smiles, but not his sultans smile, and he settles back the blade, but Don John of Austria rides home from the crusade. And now
1: we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than a hundred thousand other titles when you try Audible Free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's Star Kingdom of Manticore has entered into a simmering, low level conflict with the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling and on the verge a region on the edge of its empire, rebellion is brewing. The Solarian Office of Frontier Security is in charge of keeping the peace on the verge, often with brutal tactics and by providing support to puppet dictators. Rebels opposed to the oppressive regimes can't hope to match the military might of the OFS without considerable aid, aid they are receiving in the form of weapons drops by agents claiming to represent the Star Empire of Manticore. But that's a ruse. These agents actually serve the shadowy Mason alignment, eugenic supremacists who wish to see the Solarian League and the Star Empire at war. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michel Hinka, Countess Goldpeak, commands the Royal Manticoran Navy forces in the Talbot Quadrant, which is a region allied with the Star Kingdom and on the restive border of the Verge. Goldpeak is sympathetic to the rebels, but as yet unaware of false promises being made by agents of the Alignment for Navy support from the Royal Manticoran Navy. That may be about to change. Here is Part 32 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom.
0: Chapter 24 Excuse me? Stephen Westman of the Montana Westman's tipped back his spotless white Stetson, the better to raise both eyebrows at the rather unassuming-looking man who'd just been shown into his office. "'I don't suppose you've got any kind of documentation to support this tale of yours?' he went on. "'No, Mr. Westman,' his visitor admitted. "'Not that you'd recognize, anyway.' "'Ah, I see.' You have some kind of code word or secret handshake Admiral Goldpeak will recognize, but for some reason, you need me to introduce you to her. He shook his head, blue eyes hard. Mister, I realize it wasn't so very long ago I got played like a fiddle, but you know, even a Montanan can learn. Hell, even a Westman can learn if you use a big enough clue stick. I'm not sure what you're talking about, the visitor said with a puzzled expression. I was just given your name as a person to contact here on Montana who might have connections and be willing to put me in touch with the senior Manticoran naval officer in the system. All I need is the opportunity to speak to whoever that is. If that's this Admiral Goldpeak, then that's who I need to talk to. Westman frowned. He'd never seen this stranger before, and he couldn't place the man's accent. The fellow had just turned up in the office he maintained here in the Montana capital of Brewster, shown credentials identifying him as a purchasing agent for the Trifecta Corporation, and announced his interest in acquiring Montanan beef for export to the Mobius system. Given that Mobius was little more than a hundred and ninety light years from Montana, about two T months for a normal bull caller but barely three T-weeks for the faster ships that served the passenger and perishable goods trades, the idea actually made quite a lot of sense. According to the purchasing agent, the cost of beef in Mobius, where livestock producers were few and far between, and even genetically engineered cattle had adapted only poorly to the local environment, was about 90 Manticoran dollars a kilo, as opposed to considerably less than $3 a kilo here on Montana. Mobian beef wasn't especially good, either, whereas Montana's beef had a galaxy-wide five-star quality rating, and quite a few gourmands would have given it six stars, if they'd been allowed to, and interstellar freight rates were ridiculously cheap. He could easily afford to pay Westman five or six times the spaceport delivery price on Montana and still show a five or six hundred percent profit. From what little Westman knew about Mobius, It seemed unlikely the typical Mobian was going to be able to afford prices like that. There were probably enough transstellar employees and their flunkies to make it a viable long-term proposition, though, and that wasn't really his problem either way, so he'd flown into Brewster to meet with the man, at which point the purchasing agent had sprung his surprise. Question is, is he really as pig-ignorant about my little dust-up here on Montana as he's pretending? Seems unlikely, if I'm supposed to be willing to act as his introduction, but let's be fair, Stevie. Montana's not exactly the center of the known universe, as far as people living somewhere else are concerned. Things might have got just a little garbled in transmission. The real problem, he admitted to himself, was that he had been played like a fiddle by Firebrand the mason agent provocateur who'd offered to provide his own resistance effort with weapons for his campaign to prevent Montana from becoming part of the Star Empire of Manticore. He'd done some stupid things in his life, but right offhand, he couldn't think of any which had been stupider than that one. For one thing, he'd been wrong about the Mantis. For that matter, he'd even been wrong about Bernardus Van Dort, and that had been a really unpleasant pill to swallow but what he found even harder to forgive himself for was accepting Firebrand at face value. When he'd discovered he'd actually been working with something as foul as Manpower Incorporated, come on, Steve, he told himself. Even if this fellow knows all about your bout of temporary insanity, nobody'd be stupid enough to try and suck you in the same way twice. Well, maybe they would if they really knew you, But assuming they'd figure you actually have a working brain, they wouldn't try to set you up the same way all over again. But still, this whole thing sounds loonier than a tenderfoot trying to cross the Missouri Gorge on foot. Excuse me for asking this, Mr. Onkenbrandt, but you said somebody gave you my name because I might be willing to sort of introduce you around... Exactly why did whoever it was seem to think I might be willing to do any such thing? And what made them choose me over all the other lunatics on this planet? I'm afraid I don't know the answer to either of those questions, the purchasing agent replied, except for the obvious, that is. Obvious? Westman chuckled sourly. Pardon me for saying this, but nothing about this strikes me as obvious. "'Sorry.' Ankenbrandt smiled briefly. "'What I meant was that Trifecta really is interested "'in exploring the market in Mobius for Montana beef. "'That means nobody's going to ask any questions "'about my happening to meet with somebody "'who exports beef from Montana. "'Aside from that, I really don't know "'why they put your name on my list of contacts. "'And who might this they be?' I'm afraid I'm not at liberty to disclose that to anyone except the senior Manticoran officer in system. Honkenbrandt's tone sounded genuinely apologetic. I see. Westman studied the Solarian narrowly. And if I should happen to turn all suspicious and hand your outworld ass, if you'll pardon my language, over to the marshal service with the recommendation that they just purely investigate the hell out of you? I really wish you wouldn't do that, Ankenbrandt said. It wouldn't be a pleasant experience, and they wouldn't find anything anyway. On the other hand, it could get me and a lot of other people into a lot of trouble if the wrong people back in Mobius were to hear about it. And to be honest, I don't think the Mantys would be very happy with you if that happened damned if he doesn't sound like the real deal westman reflected and from his expression i think he's telling the truth about how much trouble he could get into back home he's mighty insistent on how bad the Manties are gonna want to talk to him too even if they don't know he's coming well he said out loud after a moment I'm afraid if you want me to introduce you to Admiral Goldpeak, you're out of luck. I've met the lady, but she and I don't frequent the same circles. Uncanbrant's expression fell, but Westman continued unhurriedly. Just happens, though, that I do know at least one Mandy officer who'd be able to get you in to see her, assuming, of course, you can convince him that'd be a good idea. The Montanan smiled slowly. Mind you, he doesn't convince real easy, and he's just a mite on the stubborn side himself. Fraid that's about the best I can do for you, though. Interested? Honkenbrandt was obviously torn. He turned and looked out the office windows for a good 15 seconds, clearly thinking hard, then turned back to Westman. If that's the best you can do... And if you're willing to go that far for me, I'll take your offer and be grateful, he said. Fine. Westman tapped his personal calm awake, entered a combination from memory, and turned to look out the windows himself, waiting. It took a little longer than usual for the connection to go through. Then he smiled out at the passing air cars of downtown Brewster. Howdy, Helen, he said, and his voice had grown much warmer. Tell me, would it happen the Commodore, and you, of course, would be able to join me at the rare sirloin for dinner in a couple of hours, say? He listened for a moment, still looking out the window, and snorted. Now, I haven't gone back to my wicked ways, young lady, but... His expression sobered. It appears somebody else may have something along those lines he wants to talk about. He listened again. I don't mind holding, he said. Then he stood at the windows whistling softly for several seconds. Then, Yes? He listened again, then nodded in satisfaction. Fine. Tell the Commodore I appreciate it, and I'll see both of you then. Clear. He deactivated the comm again and turned to the Solarian. Well, there you go, Mr. Onkenbrandt. You've got your meeting. Just bear in mind that neither the Commodore nor I are real fond of people who try to play us for fools. Yes, Ivaris, what can I do for you? Michelle Hankey asked. This is going to sound a little strange, ma'am," Sir Ivaris Terakov said from her calm display. There's a lot of that going around lately, she replied dryly. I meant, it's going to sound even stranger than most of what's been happening. He explained with a slight smile, and she raised her eyebrows. You fill me with dread. Go ahead. Well, Ensign Zilwicky and I had dinner down on Montana with an old acquaintance of ours an hour or so ago. And that acquaintance had brought along a guest with an odd request, it seems the admittance signal chimed, and Michelle Hankey glanced over her shoulder at Master Sergeant Massimiliano Cognasso. Master Sergeant Cognasso, Miliano to his friends, was scarcely accustomed to hobnobbing with flag officers, who also happened to be fourth in line for the imperial throne. He was, however, a 20 T year veteran of the Royal Manticoran Marines, and while he might not have been precisely comfortable, he didn't seem all that distressed either." nor did the real reason for his presence seem especially flustered. The tree-cat on Cognasso's shoulder had his head up and his ears pricked as he turned to look at the inner side of the cabin hatch, but although the very tip of his fluffy tail was kinked up in a question mark, it was also still and alert. There were exactly two tree-cats in Tenth Fleet, as Michel had made it Gervais Archer's business to discover. That was actually an amazingly high number, given how few tree cats adopted humans, but only Cognasso and Alfredo had been close enough for Gervase to get them aboard HMS Artemis in time for this meeting. "'Are you two ready, Master Sergeant?' Michel asked, and Cognasso nodded. "'Yes, ma'am,' he replied. "'Good,' Michel smiled, then looked at the tree cat. "'And remember, Alfredo, we don't want him to know if you catch him in a lie.' The cat raised his right hand, signing the letter Y, and nodding it up and down, and Michelle nodded back. Then she pressed the admittance stud on her desk and sat back as Chris Billingsley led Sir Ivars Terakov and a civilian stranger into her day cabin. Commodore Terakov and guest, my lady, Billingsley announced formally, and Michelle rose behind the desk and extended her hand. Sir Ivars, she said, speaking a bit more formally than usual herself. Admiral Goldpeak, he replied, shaking her hand firmly. Thank you for agreeing to see us so promptly, especially under such unusual circumstances. Ah, yes, unusual, she repeated. That does seem an appropriate adjective. And this, she transferred her gaze to the civilian at Terokov's side without extending her hand, must be the mysterious Mr. Ankenbrandt. Yes, Admiral. Ankenbrandt gave her a small bow. He was one of the most unmemorable people Michelle had ever seen. Well-dressed and well-groomed, but with an almost mousy look. The sort who was obviously a numbers kind of person, a master of the internal dynamics of a corporate office, perhaps, but not the kind who got out much. That was her first thought, but then her eyes narrowed slightly. According to Terakov's briefing, Michael Ankenbrand hadn't known a thing about her before the Commodore agreed to get him in to see her. He hadn't even known the Manticoran fleet commander's name, much less who she was related to. Yet even though he was obviously more than a little nervous, he was also composed. There was anxiety in his eyes, perhaps, but not a trace of panic. So, what can I do for you, Mr. Ankenbrand? She inquired, pointing at the pair of chairs arranged to face her desk. She glanced up at Billingsley and nodded in dismissal while her guests sat. The steward gave her a grumpy look. Obviously, he didn't much care for the thought of leaving her with a stranger in an age of nanotech assassinations, but he didn't argue. He did exchange a speaking look with Master Sergeant Cuniasso before he withdrew with what he probably thought was reasonable gracefulness, however. Michelle did her best to ignore the exchange, although her lips twitched ever so slightly as she gazed at Ankenbrandt attentively. "'The situation's a bit awkward, Countess Goldpeak,' the civilian said after a moment. "'To be frank, when I left Mobius, no one had any idea there might be a fleet presence this powerful at Montana. This was supposed to be just an intermediate stop on my way to Spindle and Baroness Medusa.' Despite herself, Michelle's eyebrows rose, and he shook his head. As I said, it's awkward. Under the circumstances, though, I felt I had no choice but to dust off one of the optional plans I was given when I left. Optional plans? Michelle repeated. The people I represent have been in communication with the Star Empire for some time now, Admiral. Ankenbrandt said, lovely. It's been an indirect communication... Through some fairly roundabout conduits, and I don't know whether or not you've been briefed on it from Manticore's end. His rising tone made the last statement a question, and Michelle shook her head. To be honest, Mr. Ankenbrandt, what I know about the Mobius system is minute, to say the very least, and nobody in Spindle, or anywhere else, has briefed me on anything where the system's concerned. I was afraid that would be the case." Ankenbrandt sighed. I hoped I might be wrong, though. Why? Michelle asked bluntly. Because I'm afraid time is running out for Mobius, Ankenbrandt replied flatly. If you'd been briefed, you might be prepared to do something about that. Since you haven't been. His voice trailed off, and he shrugged heavily. Michelle looked at him for a moment, then glanced at her desktop display. It was set to mirror mode, showing the reflections of Master Sergeant Cognasso and Alfredo, and she reached out to fiddle with a crystal paperweight engraved with the hull number of her first hyper-capable command. An instant later, Alfredo casually laid his left true hand on Cognasso's head. "'So whatever else is going on, this fellow at least thinks he's telling us the truth,' she thought. "'Which is all just as mysterious as hell, isn't it, Mike?' Oh, the joys of senior flag rank.
1: That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 32, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Ace interviewer David F. Sherirad. The always concise Laura Haywood Corey. Christopher Ciaffani. And podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a Tarzan call of gratitude and praise supplemented by the personal appearance of Princess Deja Thoris in the dream of their choice to Mike Resnick, Robert Garcia, Sarah A. Hoyt, Joe Lansdale, and the Chestertonian Tom Kratman. Please join us next time here at the Hammering Heart of Science Fiction and Fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.